0: Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd, and it's time for another edition of the Needle Drop podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we give you the best clips from our The Needle Drop and Fantano channels. In this week's episode, I'm giving you a new review of the posthumous record for the Tentacion album Skin, also the latest Ski Mask the Slump God album, Stokely, Talking about the new 1975 record as well. The UK Pop Act is back with a new record with a lengthy title, A Brief Inquiry into Online Relationships. Going to be talking about the new Earl Sweatshirt record, some rap songs, and we are topping it all off with a record of electronic, quirky, and glitchy bangers from UK producer Kai Whiston. Uh, The record's name is Kai Whiston. Uh, Also... On top of that, I'm going to be doing an opinion piece on Fortnite, or rather Fortnite's parent company, Epic Games, getting sued for the use and sale of a variety of very popular dances, specifically the Millie Rock uh, in the Fortnite game franchise. And uh, that's going to be it for this episode. Strap in, get ready, here we go. Uh, ba <laughs> And it's time for a review of the new XXX Tentacion album Skins. This is the new posthumous album from rapper, singer, and songwriter XXX Tentacion, who was tragically murdered this past summer in broad daylight. He just released a pretty successful sophomore record in March, and he was still awaiting trial for domestic abuse charges that have since been dropped due to his death. However, X's passing did not stop the promotion or the release of his music, as Bad Vibes Forever, in connection with Empire Records, still plan to put out more X music sooner rather than later. And at this point, who knows, maybe what's on this new album over here is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what X's label is willing to release of his leftovers. What's for sure is that as long as X's music is in the spotlight and it's continuing to be released and promoted, His public image is going to be in the spotlight, too. As this past October, Pitchfork Media dropped a previously unreleased audio recording of what sounded like X admitting to the abuse he was charged with. That being said, I don't really feel like this is a review where I'm going to be talking about the music on this album all that much. Mostly because there is so little here. There are ten tracks on this new record. They amount to 20 minutes or so. The first track is an intro. For the most part, the tracks on this thing just feel very roughly pieced together to somewhat resemble maybe an image of possibly an album. Tracks like, Whoa, Mind and Awe, as well as I Don't Let Go just Feature X faintly vocalizing and kind of rapping very softly over a pretty skeletal instrumental. It very much sounds like just a sketchy idea for a song, and that's it. X's label didn't even properly mix these tracks before they came out. The difference interlude is another completely unnecessary and tedious moment on this record. The thought that an album like this could have an interlude when it sounds nearly as demo quality and just as brief as everything else on here, somehow this thing sounds less finished than many of the roughly recorded emo folk cuts off of X's 17, and even some of that turns up on this thing, most notably on the closer. The fact that Empire would drop this album in the state that it is just goes to show how desperate they are to get more streams off of X's name, and that's it. Because they're literally just reassembling the cutting room floor and painting it as an album. One more thing that makes me feel that way is that this album doesn't even feel like the artistic direction X was forecasting to on his last album. As his last record featured more tracks, more variety, some longer songs, cuts that just were straight rock instrumentals. And there is a little bit of that here, but again, it feels like it's just in a diminished capacity because much of what's on Skins just doesn't feel finished. From the lead single, Bad, which pretty much reads like the other two near-demo cuts on here, but maybe the vocals are a little bit better recorded, it's still barely structured enough to be a song. Uh, X, for the most part, his lead vocals just kind of sound like a very faint, nasally idea of a hook, not really something he's kind of uh, saying all that boldly because I, I don't know if he was going to end up changing it down the road or something. The song One Minute with Kanye West, it's it's titled One Minute, but ironically it's the only track on here that breaches three minutes. I don't know what to say about this song. I, I guess I just hope that all parties involved, or at least uh, chose to be involved, are proud of what they did here. I guess in a way I kind of admire it for trying to bring rap rock back, but one, the track features this awful... Lead guitar riff. I don't know what this sound is. Is it a horrible sample? Is it something coming out of a keyboard? I'm not sure. Or is it coming out of a DAW? I don't know. It just feels like the worst imitation of a guitar riff and it's just so static and repeats so plainly across the length of almost the entire instrumental. It's kind of annoying in the first few seconds of the song and my god, in the last minute it's like torture. <laughs> X only comes in on the tail end of the song because there's not enough of him to actually make this an entire track. That's why Kanye has to fill out most of it. But before I go on to Ye's verse, I will say there was a ridiculous part on this track just before the last chorus and bridge where X lets out this really long, brutal scream. But the thing is, some studio wizard took a chunk of his scream and looped it over and over and over so that his scream would stretch out eight full bars. Because it it literally sounds like he's going "Ah!" Meanwhile, with Kanye's verse, he just reads this so painfully desperate for attention and acceptance from this new wave of music listeners who inhabit X's fan base, one bar after another in Kanye's verse is pretty much meant just to give people who are still deflecting on the X allegations up until this day a bit of a, a comfort blanket, like, oh, you know, it's, it's okay. It's all right. While simultaneously delegitimizing the claims of people who have suffered abuse. I mean, I get it. Innocent till proven guilty. There's a reason that it's a primary function of our judicial system. But why you would want to argue that point, I don't know. After an audio recording surfaces of the person whose track you're on claiming to have f***ed up his ex-girlfriend and stabbed multiple people. Honestly, this makes me miss when Kanye was on the MAGA train because somehow it was less cringy. Honestly, the only parts on this record I really liked were Guardian Angel. Again, not really a full track on this record, but despite its brevity, I am kind of impressed by the intense and speedy and passionate rapping that X delivered onto the track. The instrumental, though, pretty much just sounds like a reversed version of the Jocelyn Flores beat, though. The song Staring at the Sky doesn't sound like much at first. It does kind of kick off like another piece of emo folk from X with uh, some nasally vocals and some basic lyrics and an acoustic guitar. But when it eventually goes full-fledged into this heavy, distorted hook, it's actually kind of great and reminds me of a a lot of old-school, very heavy, lo-fi screamo music from back in the day, a sound you don't really hear all that much anymore. I wonder how much of that sound in this track is... X coincidentally channeling it, or if he was aware of a lot of these old-school screamo groups. Then there's Train Food, which I actually think ranks as one of X's best tracks ever, where it's kind of a narrative cut over a lo-fi, sound effect-filled instrumental with these uh, very dreary and dark pianos. The beat, in a way, kind of makes me think of, like, what Phil Elvram from Mount Erie would do if he had to make a hip-hop beat or something, X raps over the track about essentially uh, trying to go home, uh, walking there, he goes by some train tracks, and there's this dark figure who's essentially torturing him and tormenting him, uh, personified as Death, I believe, and he essentially makes our protagonist meet his end on the tracks of a train, I guess. It's a pretty dark track. Outside of that, though, I didn't really like anything that this album had to offer. Skins is easily one of the least gratifying projects that I've heard this year. However, I cannot lay the lack of gratification at the feet of the artist who this album is titled after i put that instead on the individuals who decided to take part in this project and to release it as it currently is in its very clearly unfinished state and not label it properly as like just leftovers or b-sides or whatever which it very apparently is i'm feeling a decent two on this thing tran transition into the next review and it's time for a review of the new Ski Mask the Slump God album, Stoke Stokely. This is the new commercial debut album of Ski Mask the Slump God, whose work I've covered a few times up until this point because I think his voice, his flow, his lyrics, are some of the most unique in the SoundCloud scene at the moment. I guess if you could even call it that anymore. His voice is kind of husky with a light rasp. He's not afraid to lose it on the mic too when he needs to. His flow is visceral, it's speedy, occasionally dizzying. His bars are consistently crude, hilarious, and kind of absurd. With numerous references to games and bodily functions and cartoon shows. Like Spongebob and Danny Phantom and (laughs) Ben 10. And my favorite anime too! Drinking jesh! Really anything to sound weird and get a rise out of his audience, even lace his tracks full of these very zany ad-libs. What's been holding me back from loving a Ski Mask project up until this point, though, has been his mixtape's brevity and inconsistency. But since this album is Ski Mask's official commercial debut record, I was kind of hoping he would... Go a little bigger, pull out all the stops, and resolve some of the underwhelming issues that I've had with his projects in the past. Unfortunately, though, Stokely is every bit as much a mixed bag as its predecessors, despite Ski Mask's best efforts to draw this record out a little bit and vary up its style and sound. First off, this thing is 32 minutes long, which is not the longest record in the world, but certainly feels like a marathon by Ski Mask, The Slump God standards. And even though he does shoot for some longer song lengths on this thing, there are a few tracks that actually reach the three minute mark these songs actually end up being some of my least favorite on the record. Meanwhile, other cuts on here like Get Geeked feel more like a rough, sketchy idea for a song more than it does an actual song. Though for me, brevity is not the biggest issue when it comes to Ski Mask's music, mostly because his flow and his lyrics are so eccentric that they leave a pretty huge impact in a short amount of time. What's more disappointing on this album is seeing Ski Mask essentially creatively paint himself into a corner on a handful of tracks that feel utterly by the numbers. Or tracks that totally fall flat as he tries to step outside of his comfort zone. I'm talking about the intro track on this thing where he tries to pull off this moany, spacious, atmospheric, moody trap thing. I mean, it's 2018. We've heard dozens of artists attempt this sound at this point. However, in this instance, it feels like it takes forever for the song to even begin and even develop by the time it's over i i really don't feel like i've heard much of anything other than just elongated filler the vocals are really sloppily executed this sound is really not in ski masks wheelhouse so why he would go at it for so long and start his new album off with it i really have no idea. And sadly, this is not the only time on this album where he goes in this direction. The song Save Me Part 2 sounds like a buttery blend of pop, trap, and R&B. And personally, I don't really think Ski Mask's voice, his personality, his flow really fits over this ultra-slick style of production. It really sounds more fit for a Chris Brown song. Granted, the other two tracks that shoot for a more melodic style are not nearly as bad. The song You and I, as well as Far Gone with Little Baby, but I wouldn't call either of them highlights. Meanwhile, almost a third of this album contains tracks that could have landed on Ski's two previous mixtapes and just got lost in the haze because they sound so utterly average. A somewhat left-field trap beat a kind of forgettable hook. A few funny quotables here and there, like I Beyond on the ass, like a fucking bike seat. I'm talking about tracks like Adults Swim and Unbothered and Get Geeked, as well as the closing track Cat Piss with Little Yachty, uh, which was kind of disappointing. I thought that him and Yachty would have a bit more chemistry on this cut. It's not nearly as exciting as seeing Ski and Juice World totally go off on the song Nuketown. The performances on this track are some of the punkish I've heard on a trap beat in 2018. And as long as we're talking highlights on here, I have to mention the song Foot Fungus, which has one of the weirdest and funkiest beats on the entire record, which combined with the elongated sc- On the hook, the track essentially sounds like SoundCloud's answer to Snoop Dogg and Pharrell's Drop It Like It's Hot. The flow that Ski Mask shows off on the hook also kind of leads me to this conclusion. The song La La is also a highlight on here. It sounds like one of the incredibly in-your-face, aggressive, overblown bangers that sort of put Ski Mask and Tentacion on the map earlier in their careers. The Ronnie J beat on this cut is pretty simple but effective as the selling point to the song is really how over the top and animalistic Ski Mask sounds on the beat. Not some of his best verses on the entire record, though. Most of them just come off as a really edgy without enough levity. The song Reborn to Rebel is another highlight on the record, but mostly for its banger beat and sing-along hook. The lyrics have this weird faux revolutionary tone that kind of read like, I don't know, giving a middle finger to the White House on top of a dune buggy spinning donuts while the country is just submerged into a nationwide riot. It's wild, it's fun, it's edgy, it's free, but, um, you know, it doesn't really provide much else outside of that. The song Fawcett Fail is one of the weirdest surprises on this thing. For the most part, it sounds like another piece of weirdo trap from Ski Mask, but then certain passages incorporate what sounds like a reggaeton beat, but somehow it really works and kind of keeps things refreshing. I mean, overall this record isn't awful, but it's still kind of a letdown because at this point in Ski Mask's career, I was kind of hoping that he would totally just Kill it, surprise me, come into his own a little bit more, and define himself as just kind of being a cut above as a lot of the other artists who he's currently in competition with. And sure, while some of his best material is on this record, some of his worst tracks are too. As again, there are quite a few songs on here for him that feel really predictable, not all that memorable, or are just totally lackluster attempts at trying to change things up. So, even though I came away from this record liking more songs than I didn't, for sure, I still don't really feel like this project is a true display of Ski Mask's full potential. And, uh, you know, that's sad. I'm feeling a light six on this thing. Before we get into the next review, I want to give a shout-out to one of our sponsors, the good people over at The Ridge. They make these nifty, metal-plated, fantastic, minimalist, compact wallets that fit right in your front pocket. Upgrade from that disgusting, bulky leather wallet this holiday season. Hit up RidgeWallet.com slash Fantano. That is RidgeWallet.com slash Fantano. Use promo code Fantano to get 10% off and join the Ridge Wallet revolution today. Does that sound cool? Does that, does that sound cool enough to you? I hope it does. Uh, supports the channel, supports the podcast. Do it, and uh, thank you. Here's the next review. And it is time for a review of the new 1975 album, A Brief Inquiry into Online Relationships. This is the latest full-length album from UK pop outfit, The 1975, There third record to date, and this thing has quickly become the band's most critically acclaimed release so far, garnering high praise from across the music publication spectrum, and it seems to be winning over a lot of fans too, and and I can see why. This thing is easily the band's most mature and versatile record yet, as they try their hands at a myriad of different styles outside of their Usual guitar-driven pop anthem comfort zone. The production on this thing generally is smooth, it's pristine, but still pretty lively. I do like the aesthetic of this record a lot. I mean, it just... Sounds pretty. During its best moments, the music on this thing radiates this feeling of pure bliss and euphoria. And even though it might seem pretty obvious what this record is about given its name, I still do give the 1975 credit for making this album slightly more conceptual than their last two. I generally think the tracklist of this thing flows pretty well for an entire hour of music. It certainly doesn't feel that long. Or it feels like the band are always presenting something new, so the record continues to stay engaging and dynamic. I can't say I'm coming away from this album as impressed as some people are though. And it's not that I don't admire what the 1975 are shooting for on this album, I do, but uh, some of it is just either half-baked or ill-conceived. Typically when this record works for me, The band are playing it pretty straight, like on the single Love It If We Made It, which was a teaser track I enjoyed upon first listen, and it's only grown on me in the context of the record. I love the tense and sweet instrumental on this thing, building up against some really passionate vocals. The lyrics essentially about society's unresolved problems, or even worsened problems as we have uh, transitioned into this modern age. And even though the track takes really long to resolve into the first hook, when it eventually gives the listener the payoff, it is amazing. It's rare that you see such a mainstream pop act out there willing to tell the audience, no, you have to wait for the payoff just a little bit. But believe me, when the band eventually does let go into this gargantuan, shimmering, 80s-esque chorus, it's great. I also like the band's attempt at a pop and R&B blend on Sincerity is Scary. The loving, cascading, but kind of messy horns, the skipping beat, the intimate vocals, it's all pretty endearing. And it gets even better as the band introduces these huge, panoramic chorus vocals, which honestly really lights the song up. Why can't we be friends? when we are lovers, Easily one of my favorite tracks the band has done so far. The 1980s, and specifically pop rock and synth pop, continue to be a huge influence deeper into the record. Like on the song, it's not living if it's not with you. A track that probably would have ruled the radio had it been released decades ago. The slick guitar licks and high gloss finish and Orgasmic chorus on the song are wonderful. I also love the sentiment of the song, too Even though it's probably been said a thousand times over I do like the idea of just life and the world being a miserable place without this person who you have in mind I also love the slow burning and dramatic build up of the track inside your mind The track feels like staring at a bunch of old polaroids and crying when you're overcome with Nostalgia, or, I don't know, running across the beach, like, in slow motion. With a sunset in the background and a wide-angle shot, Looking real cinematic. Also, the strings and wailing guitar lead on this cut are pretty iconic, too. I Couldn't Be More In Love is another pretty ballad on the album. Seems like an old-school contemporary R&B throwback from the 80s, again, just based on the synth timbre alone. Just based on the synth patch alone, and the closer, I Always Wanna Die Sometimes, is a strong finish for the record. Though stylistically, this song comes from like, more of a 90s alternative rock slash Britpop place with a splash of shoegaze influence coming out of the production. Feels almost like something that, could have come off of Radiohead's first album or whatever. Songwriting-wise, anyway, songwriting-wise, I do think the uh, uh, the pillowy, fresh, and ultra-clean sound of this record is, is something specific to the the 1975, even as they embark upon a lot of these old-school sounds. And there are a lot of great moments on this LP that come from referencing back, for sure. When things on this album go awry is really when they are, I guess, going contemporary or a little left field like the band's attempt at a jazz number on the song Mine, which essentially sounds like a combination of the blandest, most forgettable elevator jazz you've ever heard with some really middling, forgettable mainstream pop songwriting. It's pleasant while it's on, but not nearly as engaging as a lot of what's here. Then there's the ridiculous spoken word passage, The Man Who Married a Robot, and while I appreciate conceptually what the band are trying to do here, how this song adds to the themes, the major themes of this record, it still does not change that this thing reads like I don't know, a lost chunk of a script from Spike Jones's Her uh, fused with a bad 4chan copypasta. The track overall is much more annoying than I think the band intended it to be. There are some other tracks here that would otherwise be okay if not for the obnoxious autotune laid onto them. The song I Like America and America Likes Me comes to mind. It's easily the most grating cut on this entire record. Or the single Two Time, Two Time, Two Time, which at first listen weeks and weeks ago I did not like. Maybe it's grown on me a smidge since then, but I still do not care for it. It mostly sounds like an upper-crust appropriation of several different cooler music styles that have been blended to the point where it's hard to tell where one starts and another one ends. And for whatever reason, the song Be My Mistake reads like what would happen if you forced Ed Sheeran and Perfume Genius to write a song together, but it simultaneously scratches neither itch that both of those artists kind of serve. And the track How to Draw, along with everything that develops after it is one of the most perplexing spots on the entire record. The cut moves through numerous phases, this extended, somewhat pretty ambient-ish intro. An electronic instrumental suddenly pops up that sounds like a ripoff of a postal service beat. There's like an ominous electronic breakbeat passage that it shifts into at some point suddenly. At one point the track actually develops into an actual song with lead vocals, but the vocals are pitch shifted downward into this deep, whiny timbre that's nearly unlistenable. I can appreciate the band wanting to change things up a little bit structurally and experiment and do something different, but every idea the group shifts into on this song is just worse than the one before it. The song Give Yourself a Try is another moment where I do enjoy the social commentary coming out of the lyrics. I also think the super simple and minimal electronic beat is pretty compelling along with the lead vocal melody. However, the squawking and somewhat overdriven and highly mixed lead guitar is not something I would have made as prominent on a majority of the track. It makes the song sound more one-dimensional than it actually is. All in all though, I, I mostly liked this record a lot. Quite a few improvements on the band's last LP. I did like thematically what they were going for, even if many of the risks they took here didn't quite pan out. I guess I could also say this thing paves the way for more promise than their last record did. And once again, I could see this album appealing to a lot of people that are very much not me. But I think in order for that to be the case, the rougher, more ill-conceived spots on this thing would need to resonate with you much more deeply than they did with me. I'm feeling a decent to a strong six on this LP, Tran. Zition. into Into the next next review, review. and it's time for a review of the new Earl Sweatshirt album, Some Rap Songs. This is the third full-length album from poet, songwriter, and abstract hip-hop word ninja, Earl Sweatshirt. It's been a few years since we last heard from Earl in a studio album capacity, his 2015 record, I Don't Like Sh- I Don't Go Outside was his last. That year was also the same when the hip-hop collective that helped pave his way to fame, Odd Future, had pretty much become defunct as a cohesive unit. Though Earl's absence from the group during their peak of hype kind of became a rallying cry across every corner of the internet. On music boards, on social media, every music publication under the sun, as well as even traditional outlets like the New York Times. Free him! Free my boy Earl! Free him now! He's literally been free for like the past five years. We did it. We did it, everybody. We did it. Good job! While Earl is a member of Odd Future, and certainly a big reason as to why the group blew up, there's always been something about him that's made him stand out amongst every other member in the group, whether that be his literal geographic location, or his lyrical talent and attention to detail. Also an uncompromising, emotionally dark streak in his music that not only made him stick out like a sore thumb in Odd Future, but really in the current hip-hop meta in general. And Earl's anxieties as well as his depression have not been exactly a secret up until this point. They were on display in a big way on his last record, and on top of it earlier this year, Earl canceled an entire European tour citing anxiety and depression as the reason why. Considering that, I guessed months ago, whatever Earl's next album is going to be will most likely be his darkest and maybe most despondent yet. And the teaser tracks to this record, like The Mint and Nowhere To Go, certainly forecasted toward that. Especially considering the song's gloomy lyrics, minimal structures, and hypnotic experimental production. Going even further down a dismal rabbit hole than I Don't Like Shit did. And as angry and as negative as that album was, occasionally the production did feel a little rickety, and Earl vocally still sounded relatively fresh and youthful kind of empowered by his anger. And now, just a little while down the road, a few years later, we're being subject to some pretty significant changes. The beats, while they might be slightly more repetitive than they were on Earl's last record, their sound palette is experimental, it's lo-fi, it's fuzzy, it's rich, it is dense, it is surreal. Simple, but powerful. Meanwhile, Earl's emotional instability sounds like it's aged him, two or three decades. In a way, it's kind of a shocking night and day difference comparing his voice and his demeanor and his delivery on this record to his last, or even Doris. And now that most of the songs on this album are pretty brief and this thing stands at 15 tracks and 24 minutes or so, the whole thing feels like a tapestry of sad, abstract, dreamy rap vignettes, which range from hopeful to hopeless lost, emotionally isolated, uh, also addicted or just diving into substance abuse. And there are some tracks on this record where Earl very clearly focuses on a single notion or emotional theme, whether that be Nowhere to Go or the uh, isolation of Eclipse, the song The Bends, which mostly focuses on Earl's friends, or the track On the Way, whose lyrical and instrumental tone feels like we're experiencing the upside of a mood swing. It's one of the few slices of bliss the album offers. This, and I would maybe say the clunky but amazing instrumental closer, which feels like a a bit of sad triumph. There is also the song Red Water, which mostly seems to focus on the rocky relationship and emotional ties that Earl has to his late father, who passed away earlier this year. And it's been no secret that Earl's parents splitting up when he was so young had a huge emotional impact on him and his music, something he essentially dives into in the song Playing Possum, which is a beautiful and psychedelic, blissful sound collage of sorts, bringing together pieces of spoken word from his mother and his father, one of which sounds like an acceptance speech of sorts, with Earl's mom thanking not only her, partner, him, various members of their family for supporting her through all of the hard work and sacrifices she needed to make in order to be put in this position where she's giving this speech. Meanwhile, this is matched with Bits of Earl's Dad, who was a poet, uh, basically reciting lines uh, about refugees, borders, homeless children. It's pretty emotionally powerful, even without a guaranteed 100% on the bullseye interpretation of the track anyway. So, again, Earl does have these tracks that conceptually are pretty focused, but for the most part, what he's doing on a lot of this record is hitting listeners with an anxious mess of many emotions at once. Which might, in concept, not sound all that impressive, but in actuality, the results of what we're hearing here is is so emotionally potent, it's pretty impressive. And the rawness of these tracks, of the instrumentals of Earl's rapping, uh, greatly contributes to this. Lyrically, Earl pretty much offers these straight, uncut rap verses, one after the next, no filler, no breaks, no uh, hooks or anything like that. And despite Earl sounding more original than ever on this record, still at this point, his major influences like MF Doom, for example, still ring pretty clearly in his sound. On more of the instrumental side of this thing, I love beats on this record like Cold Summers, whose muddy compressed bass and glistening lead melodies sound like something out of a Mad Lib wet dream. The droning and dreary piano passages matched with the skipping and sort of off-kilter drum beats on December twenty. 24th. It's super slow motion. Sounds like a depressing take on something that could have come off of Mad Villainy. Meanwhile, Earl's drawl bars matched with the twisted and manipulated and viscous slow motion samples on Lucy is absolutely demented. The track Peanut is one of the shortest on this record at just a minute, but the instrumental is so noisy and abstract and deconstructed. It feels like I'm listening to, like, an ambient noise piece or something off of, like, a a Caretaker record. The song Azucar features these glistening, wall-to-wall string samples, like high as a mountain. They just feel so huge, so full, so lush. Those are laced with these vocals that are kind of dipping in and out of the mix, disappearing, reappearing like a like a broken transmission. Earl's steady and stern bars on top bring a very nice, strong sense of composure to the chaos. I love the finishing line that he leaves off with on this track, see the ghost of where I was, as lonesome as I was, which is one of many cutting ones liners on this thing. Earl is typically known for his quotables and he does have many on this new record but usually what ends up standing out the most are the lines that are the uh, most poignantly sad. One bar that stuck with me was peace to every crease in your brain which given the themes of mental health throughout this record is is maybe not as cute as it might seem on the surface. As later into the same track he seems to rap about tumbling out of stardom and Uh, his celebrity status and having not heard applause, having not performed, kind of being isolated outside of the entertainment world in a way. Also a set of simple but very meta bars on this thing stood out to me where he says, I spent most of my life depressed, only thing on my mind was death, didn't know if my time was next. Yeah, yeah, trying to refine this shit. (laughs) It's like he's aware of what he's saying is so blunt that it's not really poetry, it doesn't really feel like a bar as much as it does, like, a really sad tweet. But I feel like that boils down to yet another appeal of this album, just how unfiltered and how casual uh, all of this comes off. It's like Earl has nothing to hide, and he's essentially laying it all out on this record. I mean, the refrain that he delivers at the very end of the song, The Mint, certainly seems to get to the heart of that. Lot of blood to let, peace to make, fuck a check, because this album is essentially an outlet, a a confessional moment, a catharsis. Now, there are a handful of cuts on this record that I found to be a little underwhelming, didn't stand out quite as much, and maybe could have used some bolder vocals or production to make them really shine amongst all of these other short, very packed-in, shoulder-to-shoulder cuts. The brevity of Lucy, in a way, I think worked against it. The opening track, Shattered Dreams. While there are elements of this cut that I like instrumentally and lyrically, the vocals were a little, uh, I guess, under-delivered and also mixed pretty low to the point where they didn't engage as clearly as they did on many other cuts where the mixing and performance were a bit more amped up and and just generally better. And even though there were some tracks on this thing that came off a little topically vague, or uh, pockets of this record that I think could have used a bit more length, or structure, or some songwriting bells and whistles, something, for the most part I did really love the incredibly brief and to the point songwriting style that Earl brings to the table on this thing. Especially how all the songs here kind of wash in and out of each other really quickly and uh, reinforce each other pretty well. All that being said though, I did love this record. Some rap songs is pretty great. Easily Earl's best record yet, in my opinion. Most emotionally intense, most artistically defined. Though admittedly, I do come away from this thing worrying about Earl's mental health a bit and hopefully he he has brighter days ahead in regards to that. I'm feeling a decent to strong eight on this thing. Before we get into the next review, I want to give a shout out to turntablelabcom slash the needle drop, slash the needle drop. If you're doing some holiday shopping for yourself or for someone who you love, who's an audiophile, music collector, they need a turntable, some wires, some speakers, a colorful pressing of a fantastic album that we have covered on the needle drop channel, hit up turntablelabcom slash the needle drop. Supports the podcast, supports the channels, we get kickback from it, you get some cool audio gear, and uh, yeah, it's a pretty nice setup. Turntablelab.com slash the needle drop. Here's the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Kai Whiston project. Kai Whiston. <laughs> Kai is a young buck from the UK who is fresh off of a little EP that he dropped via the Big Dada label last year, which has gotten a lot of support from the likes of Igloo Ghost, which is probably why his new record over here is coming out via the Glue record label. Glue as in Igloo, Gig, Igloo, Glue. Kai is pretty much one more in a growing scene of music producers with the somewhat postmodern twist, creating these massive multi-genre cacophonies of glitchy bangers from the future. Explaining Kai Wiston's influences on this record is less like a crossroad and more like a multi- lane roundabout or like an intricate highway system with a series of on and off ramps going in routes that hit a variety of of different directions. As Kai's new record over here contains elements of industrial music and wonky and trap and glitch hop, a bit of UK bass, maybe a touch of bubblegum bass, and a a little bit of new metal in there as well for some reason. There are some subtle nods on this record too to the heavy bass and gargantuan drops of dub. Step, but maybe a little bit smarter. Not too smart, though. This is not like Dubstep with a bachelor's degree. This is more like Dubstep going to night school to get its GED and then maybe go on to learn a trade. And it passed all the classes, but it didn't study that hard. The grades weren't that good, generally. Because most of the time it was worried about being the cool kid in the back of the class with some ripped jeans and an edgy band T-shirt. Does that Does that explanation Is is that enough for you? I hope it is. There are definitely some artistic parallels on this record to like the jittery rhythms of an igloo ghost track or the buildups and choppy samples of a Hudson Mohawk or even Arca's super abstract and post-industrial sound design. Kai will often find spaces in his hard-hitting and relentless tracks to work in uh, some finer, more regal, instrumental passages that are a bit more atmospheric and moody and emotional like the haunting and rich synthesizers at the start of the opening cut on this thing all is fair in love and Kai Wiston," or the moody little electric guitar licks that are introduced in the second leg of 4 Sake. A surprisingly long cut on this record at seven minutes, with a passage that features some screamed vocals and incredibly busy beats, it's like listening to a fusion of Death Grips, Igloo Ghost, and Emo Trap, some of which comes together pretty effectively, though it does feel a little gimmicky at the end of the day. What seems to leave an even larger mark on this record, though, is Kai Wiston's sense of humor, as there are tons of cheeky, absurd, and over-the-top samples and transitions all over this thing. The screamed watermark that turns up periodically on this record, it's Kai <laughs> The mutated vocal samples on the track Mushy Seas. I had a dream I got by my way to heaven. All of the chipmunk chatter that sounds like something out of an Igloo Ghost song on LSD. More LSD than usual. Then there's the song "Druck," which features these incessant vocal samples repeating again and again and again and again. Sounds like something out of a Ghetto House track. Kinda wish it were longer though. And then there are some pretty novel and creative fusions of sounds and ideas on this record too. Like on the track Brain Fritto, which sounds like Kai is taking an inspiration from that amazing Tonight EP but trying to just overblow it and distort it to the loudest volume possible. This track is brain demolishing with some meth sprinkled on top. This track is not only laced with these horrifying sour synth swells but also distorted lead melodies that that feel like a guitar lick being sucked through a wormhole. This record also has a vocal feature from the one and only Clarence Clarity on the Cut Your Secrets, where I do wish vocally he contributed a little bit more to the track, but it is a nice multi-phased banger where Kai does effectively use Clarence's voice as an instrument, a sound, uh, just a, a sample to be chopped up and sort of played throughout various points of the track to add a bit more color. It's a tasteful execution. Kai, for all of his bombacity for being as obnoxious as he is in in the DAW. He does seem to have quite a bit of technical skill and the taste to know when to push things and maybe when not to. However, in my opinion, there is a bit of a lull in the last leg of the record. And listen, it's it's not for lack of volume or anything like that. But I do think Kai hits a bit of a snag in some of the final moments of this album in that he has pushed the bangers on this record just about as far as he possibly can, at this point in time anyway. The song structures on this thing even start to suffer as the closing track just seems to disappear suddenly into vapor at some point when Kai just kind of sounds like he has no more ideas to progress it any further than he's brought it. Kai's compositions on this record, for the most part, are pretty maximal, too, and there are some moments where I do wish the mixing was a little bit better. He just packs these things with sound, and I I feel like some of it could come out a bit more clearly Um, or be a bit more overwhelming had it been more intelligible, I guess. There are also a few cuts on this thing that I think could have used a bit more structure, a bit more length, as a result of being as short and as one-dimensional as they are. They do feel kind of like odds and ends or even filler. All that being said, though, most of what is on this record, though, is pretty good. It's colorful. It's nearly lethal. It's, uh, off the wall. It's borderline insane and shows a lot of promise. Definitely a sound and definitely an artist I would like to hear more from in the future. I'm feeling a strong six to a light seven on this thing. This next segment features one leftover clips from our popular Let's Argue series on the Fantano channel. Here are one bits of me responding to some hot takes and some unpopular opinions on social media that did not make it into the latest episode. Here we go. Anime influences a lot of hip-hop now in the same way that comic books influenced a lot of hip-hop in the early 90s and 2000s. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think anime current day does kind of fill a hole that uh, that comic books uh, once filled in the 90s, in that, you know, you do have these very detailed and over-exaggerated and occasionally hyper-realistic depictions of uh, heroism and violence and uh, uh, just basically uh, very uh, exaggerated actions. They're colorful, they're exciting, it's kind of overwhelming, it's fun, it's sexy, it can be very fast, too. So yeah, I can definitely see a, a crossover, a bit of an influence going on there, for sure, absolutely. <laughs> And it's time for a bit of news, a bit of opinion on this new Fortnite situation. It turns out that the franchise's company, Epic Games, is being sued for the game's usage of the Millie Rock dance as, as an emote, as an option for, for the players to execute as like a victory dance, or I guess when they're feeling particularly Millie Rocky. If you guys uh, are familiar with Fortnite, even on a surface level, you should know at this point that one of the most popular and iconic things about the game is not just its Battle Royale-style gameplay, but it's also uh, the skins and the outfits, but most notably the dances that you could do in the game. Many of which, not simply as a result of the game, because a lot of the dances incorporated in the game were popular before they were in the game, but... The the game's incorporation of these dances has certainly opened them up to a crowd of people, most of them kids, (laughs) who most likely without this game would not be having a Fortnite floss dance competitions uh, at wherever you you do such a thing. I try to avoid that stuff. But anyway, so Fortnite is incorporating these popular dances, many of which come straight from hip-hop culture. And right now hip-hop, as we all know, is the, the, the cultural zeitgeist. So a lot of what climbs up through the ranks of the genre usually ends up transcending it and getting mixed out into other bits of popular culture, obviously video games, which we are talking about here, and this rapper, 2Milly, Millie, is credited with coming up with the dance. You can see older videos of him performing and rapping where he's doing the dance in the video. Uh, He is basically coming after them with legal help, which I imagine he would not have if uh, not for his lawyers believing that he actually had a case, because uh, no doubt Two Millie does not have the the potential legal funds that a company like Epic Games has. Okay, so I, I can't imagine uh, that he has all the money in the world to throw at this. Uh, the lawyers that he probably has working for him are in this in the hopes that they will be able to get a cut of the settlement of whatever they're able to make for this. Uh, Again, I don't think they'd be wasting their resources and wasting their time if they didn't think they actually had a case here. And 2 Millie is not merely suing over the the simple incorporation of the dance into the game. You know, the, the thing about the artistry of dance and coming up with dance moves that are popular, it's sort of difficult to become a successful dancer or somebody who sort of formulates these kinds of things without allowing those dance moves to spread and allow other people to use them. So there is obviously kind of a balance to be struck there in terms of what is and what isn't an acceptable use of the dance that you have created. I'm sure after this, uh, two million is most likely not going to uh, be suing someone like playboy Cardi for a, uh, a, uh, Being in New York and Millie rocking, I did in my sock, you know, over a magnolian and and that sort of shit. Uh, No, what sort of makes this situation unique is that Fortnite is literally selling this dance in this game. Because if you're not entirely familiar with how the whole Fortnite racket, I'll call it a racket, racket works. uh, Like many modern games and mobile games, a lot of the money made off of the Fortnite franchise is through in-game purchases. Uh, because kids, they want to, and not just kids, but adults who play the game as well, uh, they want to have certain looks, certain skins, do certain dances, have certain masks, have certain whatever. So to customize your character and have the option to look a certain way, do certain things, you have to pay. With with an in-game currency, but of course, you can put money, actual USD, into the game in order to give yourself more currency. So then you can blow that in-game currency on things like dances and so on and so forth. And uh, from what I understand, this Millie Rock dance within the game, which they call it uh, the, the the swipe, swipe it, swipey, swipey. So it's it's not directly called the Millie Rock, but the the the, the move. Uh, shout out to the Verge here for this article. Uh, the move is actually. Pretty much indistinguishable from the <laughs> actual Millie Rock. There's uh, really no arguing that that is the friggin Millie Rock right there. Um, the swipe it, the swipe it. Uh, dances like this within the game can retail at like nine dollars and50 cents. almost 10 bucks for a friggin little dance that your avatar can do in the game that is, that's, 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 that's a nice payout. It's a nice payout, which, you know, obviously millions of players are buying these dances. Millions of players are buying these dances. Millions of players are buying these costumes and skins and outfits and so on and so forth. So that, that racks up a lot. That's a lot. And two million, absolutely, absolutely deserves a a cut of that with, with no argument whatsoever. Now, Listen, I'm somebody who's not really a gigantic fan of current-day copyright law because I think much of the time it uh, puts a a damper on creativity more than it helps creativity. But with things being the way that they currently are, if we are to live under current-day copyright law because there's there's no other option at the moment, I can't just – wake up and, and not have current day copyright law apply to me or you or so on and so forth. I can't just flip a switch and turn it off. Uh, if we are to live under it, I do agree with uh, the, the philosophy that artists and smaller or more independent creators should use it against uh, larger companies and corporations to protect their own creations because if they don't, Companies like Epic Games will abuse and take advantage of the creativity as well as the generosity of people like 2Milli by putting these dances in their games and charging for them. Look, I mean, if 2Milli if was just this money-hungry dude, the Millie Rock has been everywhere over, <laughs> over the past few years or so, okay? Past couple of years. Millie Rock's been everywhere. And there are a lot more people who I think he could be suing if he was that desperate. You know, everywhere the Millie Rock turns up, you need to turn to me and ask for permission to use it. But he's not doing that. He is specifically going after a company, a very lucrative company, by the way, with a very lucrative game, who are literally charging for this dance. And uh, since this law is established, these copyright laws, I think Millie should be using them, and I think any creator on his level who has also come up with a dance. Uh, that is landed on this platform should be using copyright law as well to protect their creations and get paid for it. Uh, this article from The Verge also mentions that Blockboy JB shoot is also used in this game. You know the the whoa, whoa, whoa. everybody's seen that friggin' dance. Um, and uh, also, uh, uh, let's see the chorus of uh, oh yeah Snoop Dogg's uh, turning of the wheel uh, from Drop It Like It's Hot. Uh, it's called the tidy. That's cute as well. It's a nice name flip. Now, some of you might be saying at this point, Anthony, this makes no sense. Copywriting or suing over a dance move? I mean, I've never even heard such a thing. And honestly, before this article and before the situation, (laughs) I haven't really heard of it either. Uh, However, it turns out that you don't even really need to Google or do internet research that far to find any sort of information or precedent on this whole concept. The good people over at LegalZoom have an entire article about specifically this topic. Uh, it's not even just couched under a larger article about intellectual property or anything like that. This is literally about how to copyright <laughs> a dance, and it turns out uh, the the grounds for kind of getting the copyright rolling on a dance aren't even really that difficult or involved. Uh, According to the start of this article, the composition and arrangement of dance movements and patterns are copyrightable as choreographic works, provided they meet two criteria. The dance must be your original work. It must originate with you and show some minimal level of creativity. The dance must be fixed in a tangible object. This might include a film or video recording the dance or a precise written description in text or in a dance notation system. An idea for a dance is not entitled to copyright protection, nor is a dance that has been performed but not notated or recorded. A dance does not have to tell a story or be presented before an audience to receive copyright protection. Copyright protection for dance begins as soon as the dance is created in a fixed, tangible object. It does not need to be registered with the Copyright Office to receive copyright protection. Copyright protection generally lasts for the lifetime of the dance's creator and another 70 years after the creator's death. So, pretty interesting there. Uh, One question that I have off the top of my head looking at this, and this article came out in 2015, so this is not even a, a totally new idea. The one question that I have is, Yes, sure, absolutely. The dance does not need to have a, I guess, a story being told or anything. But I wonder if the dance needs to be a certain length because we're talking about, oh, it's a choreographed work. And usually choreography has like many, 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 many different dance moves over an extended routine or something. Like could a simple two-step which essentially, uh, you know, the Millie Rock and a lot of other dances being incorporated into the Fortnite games, uh, can a simple two-step be copyrighted. And I would like to think in at least this case, that would be true, because this dance is very specific. It is a pretty original dance. It is unmistakable uh, in comparison to other dances. You wouldn't Uh, I guess, sort of confuse the shoot for the Millie Rock. You wouldn't confuse the funky chicken for the Millie Rock. You wouldn't confuse uh, the Harlem Shake with the Millie Rock. It's a pretty, again, it's a pretty specific dance that looks a certain way and has very particular hand and shoulder movements. So um, you wouldn't mistake it for any other dance. And, uh, And also, again, it's very popular as a dance move. It's been copied over and over and over in multiple music videos, and multiple live performances. It's been name dropped and mentioned and rapped about in song after song after song. The idea of the Millie Rock, who made it up, and how long it's been around is all pretty well established at this point. And again, as it is noted here, copyright protection for a dance begins as soon as the dance is created in a fixed tangible object. It does not need to be registered with the Copyright Office to receive copyright protection. So it's not even like 2 Millie As soon as he made the dance up, needed to mark it down, write a bunch of documents, and uh, you know, bring it to the Copyright Office and say, okay, I just made up this dance. I got to save this just in case somebody copies it and so on and so forth. No, he's, he's already met the criteria for copyright protection. And I would argue that that's the case for uh, anybody who has come up with any other dance in this game. So I would hope and would assume that if this suit goes through and 2 Millie is successful, that other creators that made other dances, they should be looking for a paycheck as well. Now, what I would ideally like to happen is not necessarily that these uh, rappers or whoever made up these dances, um, you know, whoever they be, uh, that they not necessarily sue Fortnite into oblivion and that it's gone forever. Uh, Rather, what I would prefer is is that a system is set up to where not only do the creators get a chunk of what has been made off of these dances so far, but they continue to get royalties off the sales of these dances as uh, emotes in this video game and in any other video game where uh, the, this stuff continues to turn up. Again, Um, I, I don't think that 2 million is in the wrong here, and I don't think the way that he's going about uh, Uh, executing the suit and who he is suing and why he is suing them is is at all uh, offensive, greedy, or misplaced. I don't think this is, you know, another rapper or a kid or somebody just doing the dance for fun or in a viral video because they think it's really cool. You know, this is a company with an already incredibly successful brand and franchise selling, literally selling, directly selling a literal dance move in their video game and uh, and I mean when you're when you're quite literally selling the dance the dance itself uh, for people to use in the game I don't know I, th- I think that's kind of overstepping a boundary that's not merely preventing somebody who uh, wants to have fun doing the dance from just having fun and doing the dance kids are buying these dances they're spending money on these dances and uh, the creators deserve a cut they deserve a cut and uh, that's my opinion. Let me know down in the comments what you guys think of all this. Uh, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. I will link down below to uh, this uh, Verge article and this uh, How to Copyright a Dance page. Just so anybody else out there who, you know, is watching this video, if you guys uh, know anybody who does choreography and any of their dances are getting ripped off in a Fortnite game or something in the future, uh, you know. Let them let them know. Let them know what's up because uh, th- this is certainly a, th- this is certainly important to note um, for uh, anybody who's doing anything creative because uh, there are artists all the time who do see their works get ripped off in mainstream pieces of media. And when that does happen, it it, it comes time to defend your your creativity and your rights and your and your bottom line. So, how to copyright a dance? Fortnite forever thank you everyone for listening to this latest episode of the needle drop podcast i greatly appreciate it hope all of you're doing well hit us up on social media twitter.com slash the needle drop and instagram at a fantano also you can find us on the needle drop.com to catch up with all of our content that we drop throughout the week we're also over at YouTube.com slash The and YouTube.com slash Fantano if you don't want to miss a single video and you want to see them as they come out as well. Shout out to Jonah, who puts together every episode of this podcast every week, and I will catch you guys in the next one. Love you, love you, love you. Anthony Fantano, The Needle Drop Podcast, forever.